It's good to see you all. I've missed you guys. Hopefully, the feeling is mutual. Well, we had a wonderful time in Florida. Thank you for your prayers and uh, your support while I was gone. I, I love this church. It was wonderful to go. But as you know, vacation, you can't be on vacation for forever. And it's so good to be back with you. Pastor Jesse really helped me wrap up my vacation. As I got back, and the staff, the staff too. If you have any questions about what exactly I'm talking about, I'd encourage you to ask Pastor Jesse. We had a wonderful time. I'm so excited to be back, to be back here with you. And Pastor Jesse, thank you for your word to us from Obadiah. Pride is a big deal, and we're all prideful. That was kind of my biggest takeaway. Pastor Jesse, thank you for your encouragement and word to us from Obadiah. Let's go ahead and jump into our passage, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Matthew 1, verse 20. For these next three weeks, we're going to be diving into a short Advent series. The word Advent comes from the Latin word for coming. An Advent series, and an Advent series, what we're doing is we're focusing on Jesus' first coming. The Bible teaches that Jesus has come in the past and that he will come again as Christians in this current era, we stand in between Jesus' two comings, his two advents. For the first advent, what we do, what we're doing, hopefully, these next three weeks, what hopefully we're doing is we're looking back at what happened in the past. What we're going to do is we're going to look at what it is the angels said to Joseph, Mary, and the shepherds. And we're going to jump into those passages and try to understand who Jesus is better. The goal of this Advent series is really for your confession on Christmas. I want you to say, when you say, come let us adore him, that you mean that in a, a more intense way than you might mean it now. I want to encourage you and stir up in you affections. For the Lord Jesus Christ. What a pastor's job is to do, week in and week out, is to both model in his character what it is that Jesus looks like, and also to regularly, consistently point people to Jesus. We never get past Jesus in Christianity. The Christian life is all about going to him over and over again. It's very simple. And the purpose of this series is to point you to him as the Lord who came to us in a manger. That's kind of the goal of this series. We're going to be looking at what the angels say. And the way I want us to understand this series is I want us to understand, I want to frame each message in light of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? I have a specific definition in mind. I'll share it now. The gospel is, if you're taking notes, this would be good to write down. The gospel is the story 
of the person and work of Christ in his first and second coming. The gospel is the story of the person and work of Christ in his first and second coming. I want you to notice about that definition that I'm emphasizing both Jesus' person, who he is, along with his work, what it is that he has done. I'm afraid that too often when we talk about the gospel, there is a neglect of who Jesus is. We will say, well, the gospel is that Jesus has died for our sins. I, I fully believe that and teach that. But Jesus' person, who he is, is just as important to the gospel as what it is that he has done. What we have to do as we study these passages is we have to seek to answer the question, what are the angels telling us about who Jesus is, his identity, his person? And also, what are the angels telling us about what it is that he has done, person and work? You cannot have the gospel without either of these. And so my framework for understanding these passages, my framework for teaching and preaching on these passages is going to be emphasizing both who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. His person and his work. Now this morning I will have four points. Where are my three pointers? Are you out there? My strong three pointers? Who love the three points? Oh, I guess. I guess. They were in first service, I guarantee it. This morning I'm going I'm to have four points and we're going to move in this way, it's gonna, we're first going to have a point pertaining to his person, and then his work, and then his person, and then his work. Four points, two points on his person, who he is, two points on his work, what it is that he does, what it is that he has done. Let's go ahead and read our passage. Matthew 1, 20 through 23. But as he considered these things, the, here, the he here is Joseph. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So for the first point, we're going to look at the name, the first name that Jesus has given here. Jesus has given two names. The first name is Jesus. Go ahead and write that down. That's our first point. Jesus' name. Who is Jesus? What significance is there? What theological significance is there to this name Jesus? We get this from verse 21. Here the angel is foretelling to Joseph what he should name his son. And the context here, we're, we're not exactly sure the context. I, I take it if we can kind of reconstruct the context here. It goes something like this. Mary comes to Joseph. Mary and Joseph are engaged Mary comes to Joseph and says to Joseph, I'm pregnant. 
but it's not what you think it is. The Holy Spirit has given me a child. And Joseph's like, no, no. We, we, we have to end this relationship. Joseph, being the godly man that he is, though, he doesn't want to publicly humiliate Mary. So as he's thinking how he's going to do this, an angel comes to him. And the purpose of this visitation for Joseph is to persuade him that what Mary is saying is real and true. So Joseph needs a little persuading. That's what this angel is doing. And the angel gives Joseph a command. She will bear a son. Mary, your betrothed, your fiancé, will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now, what significance is there to this name Jesus? Is there any significance? There, there, there is. This name was a very common name in the first century. Very common name. Oftentimes, you will read in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as not just Jesus, but Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the reason why that qualifier is sometimes given is because there are many Jesuses during Jesus' time. There's the Jesus of Nazareth, there's the Jesus of Galilee, there's the Jesus of over here, there's the Jesus of over there. Of Nazareth is qualifying which Jesus the Gospels are talking about. There are many Jesuses during this time. The importance of Jesus' name is not wrapped up in, in its uniqueness. It was a very common name. This name Jesus comes from the Greek name. If you were to read the Greek Bible, the Greek New Testament, and you were to look at when Jesus' name is used, that name is Iesus. Iesus. Now that Greek name is based on a Hebrew name. So we get our English name Jesus from a Hebrew name that went to a Greek name that went to an English name. And that Hebrew name is Yehoshua or Yeshua. Yehoshua or Yeshua. So what exactly was Jesus' name? If, the, if in the story they speak Hebrew, then his name would have been Yehoshua or Yeshua. But it's okay to refer to Jesus as Jesus or Jesus or Yeshua. It's okay. The, the Bible can be tra translated into other languages, so it's not of the utmost importance that we say his Hebrew name. Jesus is fine. But there's a theology here that's very important. And the theology is rooted in the notion of Yahweh saving, Yahweh's salvation. In the Old Testament, the name that God gives of himself to, Mo to Moses is Yahweh. That is God's name. And in the Old Testament, over and over again, one of the main themes of the Old Testament is that Yahweh will save his people. That redemption will happen and that God will do it. And the name Jesus, the name Yeshua, what it means if you were to look it up in a Hebrew dictionary,
or Iesus in a Greek dictionary, what it means is that Jesus, excuse me, Yahweh saves. So whenever we say that Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we pray, what we're saying is that we're praying in light of this Old Testament theology. Yahweh will be faithful to his people. And to nail this to a specific text in the Old Testament, where is this idea seen? We're not going to turn there because we have quite a bit of ground to cover this morning. But if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to review it in your own time. It's Psalm 130, 7 through 8. Psalm 130, 7 through 8. This is how the passage reads. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Lord here is capitalized. When you read the Old Testament and you see a capitalization of Lord, what the translators are indicating is that God's name is being used here. Lord is a title. Yahweh is a name. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, for with Yahweh, there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he, the Lord, Yahweh, listen how similar this passage is to Matthew 121. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And Yahweh will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Jesus' name is summed up in this passage right here. Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. As you read the Old Testament, there is a longing for the fulfillment of promises. The Old Testament is a book that looks forward. The Old Testament is not a book that is fulfilled within itself. The Old Testament is an incomplete book. If you're a faithful Jew and you're reading the Old Testament in the first century, you're longing for more. And we find the fulfillment of Psalm 130, verse 8. We find that in Jesus Christ. He is given this name because Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. If you're reading the Old Testament as a Jew in the first century, and you read that, and Yahweh will redeem Israel from all their iniquities, you ask the Lord, how will you do this? God, how will you redeem Israel? Matthew 1.21 is the answer. The way that God will do this is that Yahweh, God, will become a man. And he will be born in a manger. And in this person who lies in the dirt, who resides in a manger, this salvation of Psalm 130 verse 8 is pointing to him. He is the fulfillment. The angel is saying, give him this name because he is going to fulfill Psalm 130 verse 8. That is Jesus' identity. How does Yahweh save his people? Yahweh saves his people by becoming one of them and living and dying for their sins. So that's the Old Testament background of his name, Jesus' name. He is Yehoshua Yeshua. Yahweh saves. He is Jesus. Jesus. He is the fulfillment 
of what the Old Testament is point, pointing towards. He is the way that Yahweh brings salvation to his people. That is who he is. Now what does he do? Based upon this name, the name of Jesus, what does he do? Second point. Jesus will save you. Jesus will save you. Looking again at 121, Matthew 121. She will bear a son. Mary will bear a son. And Joseph shall call his name Jesus. Why? What's the rationale for that name? What is the basis of why the angel tells Joseph to give Jesus, to give Joseph's son this specific name? Why? We get the answer. Four. This is why. This is why Jesus has the name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now remember Psalm 130, verse 8? Yahweh saves. What this passage is doing is it is identifying Jesus as Yahweh. Yahweh is going to bring about his salvation through this man named Jesus. And what will Jesus do for, your, for you, for his people? Why do we come and we worship him? Because he will save his people from their sins. Now, as we read scripture, one very helpful tool for better understanding what it is that God says in his word, what it is that scripture teaches, is to read a passage and to think in your mind what it is, what is it that is not being said. So here the angel says to Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. How might we understand that better? We will understand it better if we put, if we flip the statement by looking at what the angel does not say. This is what the angel does not say. I've mentioned this a number of times before whenever we get to promises. The angel does not say, for he might save his people from their sins. The angel does not say, he may save his people from their sins. The angel does not say, he can save his people from their sins. The angel does not say, he could save his people from their sins. The angel is making a different statement. And the type of statement that the angel is making brings up a tremendous theological point. This, this statement is one of certitude. This statement is one of fact. This is a strong statement. The angel here is foretelling what will happen and what it is that Jesus will do his purpose, with Jesus, you do not get a kind of shoulda, coulda, woulda, maybe salvation. How, how can you live that way? Scripture does not teach that Jesus kind of offers you a little bit of salvation, and you have to do the rest. What we hear, what we have here is certitude and finality. 
and kind of connecting this to a, a, a larger theological question. Can you lose your salvation? If you are saved, can you lose your salvation? Or another way to ask the question. Is Jesus' work on your behalf certain? Or is there wiggle room there? Do you kind of need to add your own works to it? Is your salvation contingent upon yourself? So with those questions in mind, let's read the passage again. For he will save his people from their sins. The certitude of Jesus' work, the certitude of his offering of salvation to you, means that your salvation is not contingent upon yourself. So going back to the question, can you lose your salvation? No. This passage does not allow us to come to that conclusion. And the reason why we cannot lose our salvation, the reason why if you are a Christian, God will keep you, is because your salvation is not contingent upon you. What it is that you offer to God is the sin that makes salvation necessary. Your salvation from beginning out to end to eternity future and eternity past is solely based on the work of Christ for you. Your salvation is secure because Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now we all sin, don't we? Some of us have sins that we return to over and over again. We have pet sins. We all have these. And for some of you, your, the power of your flesh in your life leads to your tremendous discouragement. You often feel defeated in your Christian life. As you make strides to honor the Lord, you're, you're pushed back by the same sin that comes up over and over again. I want to remind you that your salvation, your right standing before God, is not based upon your obedience. Now, does obedience matter? Yes, it does. And as we studied in the book of Philippians, perseverance matters. We have to fight with all of our might against the power of sin. We have to lay hold of Christ and say no regularly, routinely to the temptations of sin. We have to. But our obedience in this life is always partial. Even on your best day, you still fall short. Even on your best day. And on your worst day, you feel terrible. Within this context, I want to insert this, this certitude of salvation. I want to put Jesus here. So as you look at your life, as you look at your sins, 
on your best day or your worst day, you see that you don't measure up. And within this sense of failure and the certainty of our sin comes Jesus. And the certainty of the salvation that he offers is greater than the certainty of your sin. A Puritan by the name of Richard Sibbs, he put it like this. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Can I get an amen? There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. The certitude of Jesus, the certitude of what Jesus has done, far surpasses your sins. Do you need to repent every day? Yes. But will you ever measure up? No. And dear friends, our hope is not ourselves. Our hope is Jesus. And he says he will save his people. Yahweh will redeem Israel of all of their iniquities, past, present, and future. So dear friends, in your discouragement, remember that the certitude of Jesus' sacrifice for you is greater than the certainty of your own sin. Remember that there is more mercy in our Lord than sin in us. Jesus will save you. Jesus will keep you, dear Christian. He will be faithful to you. Well, I'm only about halfway through. Been up here about 25 minutes already. Wow. I heard of a pastor who, who regularly preaches about an hour and 20 to 30 minutes. I won't go that long, maybe an hour and 15, okay? Third point. Here we're going back to Jesus' person. So his person and work in that, in that first section was Jesus. That's, it, that's who he is. And he will save you. That's what he does. So going back to person, the text gives us another name for Jesus. And the second name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Looking at verses 22 through 23. Behold, the virgin, excuse me, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The prophet here is Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, we don't have any indication in the Gospels that Jesus is actually called this. The Gospel writer here, Matthew, gives this name to Jesus, which doesn't seem to be used by other people. But nonetheless, it's still true. The frequency of its use does not determine its importance. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is Emmanuel because he is Yahweh, and he comes to dwell with his people bodily. In the first century, when you saw Jesus in the manger, what you were beholding was God himself 
If you looked in Jesus' eyes, what you would be looking at is God. Jesus being the second person of the Trinity is fully God and fully man. Now this name, Emmanuel, fits within a context, fits within a problem that the Old Testament point has pointed towards. And that problem is this. The sins of God's people separate them from God. When Israel sins, that drives God away. Some of the harshest punishments in the Old Testament occurred when God's presence was no longer in the temple. You think of Adam and Eve going back to the garden. They enjoyed fellowship with God. It, said, it says in the early chapters of Genesis that God walked in the garden. God spoke with Adam and Eve regularly. They had communion with him. They experience a degree of fellowship that we do not have, an intimate relationship. Now, after they sinned, what happened is that God kicked them out of the garden. That type of presence that God had with Adam and Eve was no longer there. And as the history of the Old Testament develops, what you see is that God gives to the people of Israel certain manifestations of his presence. You think about the temple think about the temple. The Bible says that God would dwell in the Holy of Holies. But even that was not a permanent thing. In the book of Ezekiel, the story of Ezekiel is that the glory of God departs from the temple. Now what happens to the temple? It is destroyed. So the godly people of the Old Testament were longing for a more increased sense of God's presence, a greater manifestation of it. And the way that God climaxes in the Bible, his presence with his people, the climax, the answer to man's problem of sin separating him from God, the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God does not come as a presence. God does not come and go. God becomes a man. The Bible says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. That the glory of God shined forth from his face. That Jesus was the complete picture and image of the invisible God. And in the first century as Jesus was born and lived and died... That was the pinnacle of God's expression of nearness. In Jesus, we find the answer to our loneliness, to the God-forsakenness that we feel. In Jesus, the problem of sin separating us from God is answered. He is the answer to this problem. And what this means... For us is that Jesus is always with us. Here I'm moving to my fourth point. Jesus is with you. As Emmanuel, as God with us, as Yahweh incarnate, the one who will save his people from their sins. What it is that he does is that he is with you. Jesus is with you. If you're sitting here this morning, 
and you feel your conscience either pricked, encouraged, challenged, why do you feel that way? What answer does the Bible give to that? If you're here this morning and you feel your life being challenged, if you feel God, have his, God has his hands on you and you're maybe in, uncomfortable or encouraged, you sense a, you have this feeling that God is real. Why do you feel that way? Well, the reason why you feel that way is because Jesus is here. Jesus is present with us now. Listen to this verse. Matthew 18.20 For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus is here right now. And the way you can tell is what it is that's going on in your heart. The encouragement, the weight, the degree to which your life is being examined and challenged, the reason why you feel that is because Jesus is here. His weight and his authority comes when the church gathers together. When two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, he is present with them in bringing about salvation and judgment. Now you will notice that Jesus is not here bodily. You cannot see him. Whenever I say that Jesus is here, what I'm saying is that he is here spiritually. He is here by means of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that Jesus, that God became a man, and he was born in a, in a manger. And the name given to that person is Jesus. Jesus lived and died on a Roman cross and was put in the grave. And he rose again and he ascended to the Father. So where is Jesus right now physically? He is, right, he is at the right hand of the Father. But by means of his spirit, he is working in this church. He is working in your life his purposes. Listen to what Jesus himself says in the Gospel of John. I believe Pastor Jesse referenced this, this passage in his sermons, in his sermon series on Obadiah. Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying here that as he ascends to the Father, what happens is that the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. And what the Holy Spirit does, what the Holy Spirit is doing, is he is pressing upon God's people the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus is breathing and active with us right here, right now. By means of his spirit. He is Emmanuel. We always have him. He can never be taken away. He will never die. He will never go away. And touching on the longings of our heart. We all long to be with others. We all long for companionship. We all long to know and to be known. And what we have in our lives are various relationships that we find satisfaction in. First and foremost, one's relationship to their spouse. 
one's relationship to their children, one's relationship to their parents, one's relationship to their friends. These longings are met in these human relationships. But what happens in these relationships is that people die. Maybe some of you have experienced the loss of a spouse this year, the loss of a child, the loss of a brother, a sister. And so we see this nearness that we need, we so desperately need as people. It hangs under the, the power of sin. And that death robs us of having communion with other people. Death robs us of having fellowship and not feeling lonely. So there's this longing in your heart that cannot be satisfied by human relationships. There is a longing in your heart that goes beyond what people can offer you. That longing can only be met by someone who can never die. That longing is met by Emmanuel, God with us. Your longings for fellowship and for friendship and for love can only be satisfied in Jesus. It cannot be satisfied in human relationships. People are going to let you down. People will die. Jesus will never let you down. Jesus will never die. He is always present. Access to him can happen at any time. To further draw out this point of application, I, I, I want to offer some encouragement to those who, who have a hard time during the holidays. The holidays can be a wonderful time. My wife and I and our children, we had a wonderful time with my parents over Thanksgiving. A time of celebration and joy. But that's not always the case. For some of you, the holidays might be a time of extra loneliness. The holidays may, might be a time where you grieve over the loss of your loved ones to a degree that is higher than whenever it's not the holidays. On the holidays, the holidays can serve as a reminder of what it is that we do not have. And these feelings are real. Experiencing loss in life, experiencing difficulty, can be and is highlighted during the holidays. Maybe you're not looking forward to Christmas because of the feelings it brings up in your heart. Maybe you're just looking forward to this new year starting. And with COVID, the difficulties are compounded. Loneliness is compounded. Depression is compounded. This has been a very hard year. Now, what does Jesus want to say to you if this is you? If you're struggling, what is the word that Jesus wants to give to you? Is it this? Well, you're on your own. I've done my part, now it's up to you. That's terrible. That's absolutely terrible. Or is it, well, I'm a fair weather friend. I'm there for you when things are going well, but you know what? I'm out of here. Does Jesus say that? That's not a gospel. If the gospel is contingent upon you, it's not a gospel. 
This is what Jesus says to you in your struggling and in your difficulty. If you know him, if he's your Lord, this is what he says to you. Matthew's gospel is so beautiful. It begins with Emmanuel. It begins by introducing us to this figure known as Jesus, but also known as Emmanuel. God is with his people. He will save them from their sins, and he will never forsake them. He is God with us. Now listen how the Gospel of Matthew ends. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. This is the last statement in the Gospel of Matthew. Listen. And surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thinking of Emmanuel, Matthew begins his gospel giving Jesus this name. And as the gospel develops, there are certain challenges to Jesus still having that name. Specifically his death. The death of Jesus challenges the notion that God is still with us. Has God forsaken us? Has God forsaken you? That's the question that the Gospel of Matthew asks and answers. The Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead. He will never again be defeated by death. And his last promise to you in the Gospel of Matthew... I am with you always. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Dear Christian, God has not forsaken you. God has not forsaken you. In the difficulty of your circumstances, God has not forsaken you. Jesus has, su has suffered similarly. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. And he is the ultimate friend. He's always there. He's always listening. And he's always interceding for you to the Father. Trust him. As you look in the manger, in your, in, your, in your thoughts, as you see the manger and as you see the Lord there lying in the manger, He is your eternal friend who comforts you, who encourages you, who will never leave your side. Jesus will never forsake you. He is the fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that you long for and need. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And in him, in his person, he is the fulfillment of all that you long for and need. Love him, embrace him, and trust him. Father, we pray and ask for Jesus' power here in this place. Lord, by your Spirit, by the Spirit of God, 
pray that you would impress Jesus Christ upon those who are here. Lord, if they don't know him, overwhelm them with his grace and mercy. Overwhelm the non-believer with the truth and the power and their great need for salvation and redemption. Father, for the Christian who returns again and again to the sins that they know that you disapprove of. Father, I pray that you would encourage them. Cause them to see that their salvation is not based upon their obedience. That yes, they should be obedient. And yes, you demand obedience. But even in our best day, Father, we still fall short. Give us a deep appreciation and realization that Jesus does it all. Father, for the Christian who has suffered this year, whether through the experience of losing a loved one, COVID, a mixture of something, a mixture of those two, God, I pray that Jesus would be precious to them. I pray that they would see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that they long for and need. Father, as we go through this Advent series, we pray that you would increase our desire and our confession of coming and adoring Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Spirit. Pray these in Christ's name.